Welcome to the last month at the Federal Circuit, a look at recent decisions from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit impacting the intellectual property community. Finnegan partner Dory Hines joins us now to offer insight into three recently decided cases, all of which were appeals from the PTAB. The first case we'll explore, Arisa versus Cisco, involves the consideration of the Assigner Estoppel Doctrine, which bars a patent seller from attacking the patent's validity in subsequent patent infringement litigation. Dory, tell us a little bit about this case and how the doctrine was considered. This is an appeal from a PTAB decision in an IPR for a patent that was assigned to Cisco. So here, Cisco is the patent owner Arista was the petitioner seeking to invalidate the patent. The decision here addresses a patent that the named inventor is David Sheraton. He assigned the patent to Cisco in 2003. And then in 2004, Mr. Sheraton was one of the co-founders of Arista. So this is a situation where the signer estoppel is generally applied or generally considered, and that is when an inventor of a patent leaves a company, as Mr. Sheraton did with Cisco, and then co-founded a competitor company, Arista. So the question is whether Arista is allowed to mount a validity challenge in the PTAB based on a patent that its co-founder invented. So in this appeal and the decision, it was authored by Chief Judge Prost. The question was, is the question of a signer estoppel reviewable by the Federal Circuit and the PTAB's determination that a signer estoppel did not apply? The short answer is yes. The Federal Circuit found that it is an issue that the Federal Circuit could review. So the Federal Circuit in its decision, it first needed to address an earlier panel decision, and that's from September of 2016 in the Husky injection case. And there, that panel held that the PTAB's determination that a signer estoppel did not prevent the validity challenge was not reviewable on appeal. Now, the, the Husky court and that panel had relied on the Supreme Court's decision in Quozo and concluded that the interpretation of Section 311 is the, the linchpin here. That provision is a person who is not the owner of a patent may file with the office a petition to institute an inter-party review of the patent. And the earlier Husky panel had said that Section 311 was closely related to Section 314D. And Section 314D says that a determination by the director whether to institute inter-party review is final and non-appealable. So the non-appealability of Section 314D, the Husky panel held, was closely related to whether a sign or estoppel should apply and the PTAB's determination that it did not apply, and therefore it was not reviewable. In the recent Arista case, the Federal Circuit disagreed with the earlier Husky panel's decision on reviewability, and it did so in looking at the more recent and intervening Wi-Fi One in-bank decision. And what the court recently said in its Arista decision was that Wi-Fi One essentially trimmed down the issue of 
non-reviewability by the federal circuit and that non-reviewability by the federal circuit is not as broad as the Husky panel held. Instead, unreviewability is limited to the PTO director's determinations that are closely related to the preliminary patentability determination or the exercise of discretion not to institute. In Arista, the federal circuit said that Husky cannot be reconciled with Wi-Fi 1, and because Wi-Fi 1 is the in-bank determination, it controls. So relying on Wi-Fi 1, the Arista court said that the federal circuit can review the board's decision on whether Section 311A contemplates the application of a sign or estoppel. And in particular, the Arista court said that determining whether a particular petitioner, such as Arista here, may petition for IPR does not relate to the board's patentability analysis, that is, whether the prior art actually invalidates the claims. And because it does not relate to the patentability analysis, the federal circuit can review. So a significant part of the Arista decision was the court's resolution of the earlier Husky panel decision saying there was no review to changing that and now saying in light of Wi-Fi 1, the court can review that. When it ultimately got to the merits, it seemed to be a much easier decision for the federal circuit. It said, look, on the merits, Section 311A unambiguously leaves no room for a sign or estoppel in the IPR context. So a couple of things there. The court said the statute was clear and unambiguous, and by saying any person who is not the patent owner can petition for review, and a signer who is no longer the owner of the patent may file an IPR as to that patent. They said crystal clear based just on the language of the statute itself. In doing that, the Federal Circuit said well, there's no room for Chevron deference or any of those complicated issues under the APA of deference to an administrative agency's interpretation of a statute. They said instead the statute is crystal clear, the court can say what it means, and that's what it means. In contrast, the U.S. International Trade Commission, also known as the ITC, held that the assigner estoppel doctrine prevented Arista from challenging the validity of the patent. Why is that? Let me give a little history on that first. There was an earlier ITC action which spawned these IPRs and this ultimate decision by the PTAB. There was an ITC action instituted by Cisco on six patents. Ultimately, the administrative law judge and the commission found infringement of three of those patents and issued a limited exclusion order. They also found non-infringement of two patents, including the 597 patent, which was the subject of the IPR in the more recent appeal. So in an earlier Federal Circuit appeal of that ITC decision, and that issued a little over a year ago in September of 2017, Cisco appealed the finding of non-infringement. And the finding of non-infringement was affirmed. And when it affirmed the finding of non-infringement, the Federal Circuit decision expressly did not address the signer estoppel. So the, the finding of non-infringement was affirmed, and the Federal Circuit said it did not need to address the finding of a signer estoppel. In its more recent decision, the Federal Circuit addressed the potential inconsistency with the ITC concluding that a signer estoppel prevented the validity challenge by Arista, 
whereas the IPR allowed the validity challenge by Arista. And the Federal Circuit essentially said that inconsistency is okay. Precluding a validity challenge in the ITC while allowing it in an IPR is, as the Federal Circuit said, an intentional congressional choice. And that intentional congressional choice is consistent with what the Federal Circuit said were the overarching goals of the IPR process. And that is, those extend beyond the parties in a particular patent dispute. And the overarching goals of the IPR process are to weed out and invalidate patents that are invalid over the prior art. And that there is a goal or an intention of the IPR process to do that more broadly than it is to resolve disputes between particular parties, such as the ITC dispute between Cisco and Arista. So if there was any inconsistency, the Federal Circuit said that inconsistency was okay. Um, Another point on the Arista v. Cisco case in addressing the breadth of Section 311 and the meaning of any person who is not the patent owner can challenge the validity of a patent in an IPR, that issue will also be addressed by the Supreme Court in the return mail case. And the Supreme Court just accepted cert in that case on October 26th. And the question there is whether the government is a person who can petition to institute IPR proceedings under the AIA. So the Supreme Court will have the opportunity to consider that issue and the breadth of person and will likely look to this recent Aristic decision, which adopted a broad interpretation of person as not constrained by the equitable doctrine of a sign or estoppel. The Federal Circuit also ruled recently on two other appeals regarding post-grant review decisions by the PTAB. Both cases deal with how prior art is qualified. At issue is how the accessibility of existing printed or web-based information affects the determination of prior art. The first case, GoPro versus Contour IP Holdings, was ruled on in July 2018, but the court later modified its opinion in early November. Now, Dory, tell us more about this case and the court's expanded opinion. That's right. The GoPro, original GoPro decision issued in July of 2018, and that decision was addressed extensively by my colleague Mike Flibbert in our September 2018 podcast, so go listen to it. But following that decision in July of 2018, there was a petition for rehearing by the panel and for rehearing in bank, and that was denied. However, the panel reissued and modified its decision. The issue in the case was the prior art status of a GoPro sales catalog. And that sales catalog was presented at a dealer-only trade show. It wasn't open to the general public. And the sales catalog was not made available to persons of ordinary skill in the art. It was made available to dealers of sports vehicles. So in the modified opinion, the court added some analysis. And what it added was that GoPro had met its burden of providing testimony that, quote, the dealer show was attended by actual and potential retailers, dealers, and customers of the video cameras that were the subject of the patent. And 
that testimony supported the conclusion that this GoPro catalog was disseminated with no restrictions and was intended to reach the general public. So in the modified opinion, the Federal Circuit clarified that the dissemination was intended to reach the general public and how that came to be. In addition, the modified opinion noted that when direct availability to an ordinarily skilled artisan is no longer viewed as dispositive, the undisputed record compels a conclusion that the GoPro catalog is a printed publication. So interestingly here, because one of the challenges to the conclusion that the sales catalog was publicly accessible was that it wasn't made available to one of ordinary skill in the arts, someone developing the camera system that was subject to the patent. And here, the Federal Circuit clarified this direct availability is not required. So even though the catalog wasn't directly distributed to one of skill, it can still count as a publication because it was intended to reach the general public when it was disseminated, and hundreds of them were disseminated. There were no restrictions, and the intention, based on the evidence, was that this catalog be made generally available, even though the trade show was not open to the general public and was attended by dealers and not camera developers. So the upshot of GoPro is... If you have a situation where materials about a prior art product are made available in a widespread way, notwithstanding who they are made available to, without restrictions on distribution, that can qualify as prior art. So the Federal Circuit has clarified that in its modified opinion. In November of this year, the Federal Circuit offered its opinion in Acceleration Bay versus Electronic Arts, which is very similar to GoPro. Tell us more about the case. Acceleration Bay is similar in that it also considers the prior art status of a printed publication for purposes of initiating IPR review in the PTAB. So the appeals here in the Acceleration Bay case are from 12 IPRs, the decision issued November 6, 2018. And the question in the Acceleration Bay case, similar to the question in GoPro, whether a particular document was a printed publication for purposes of a validity challenge in an IPR. Here, however, there's a different result. There was no evidence that this Lynn document was distributed to the public. And that was the question in GoPro, was distribution of it. Was it sufficient to show that the document had prior art status? And the Federal Circuit answered the question in July and re-answered the question in November. Yes, it was accessible, that it was distributed. The question here in Acceleration Bay was whether the document itself was accessible to one of skill in the arts. And in answering that question, no, it was not accessible, the Federal Circuit looked at whether the Lynn document was indexed in a meaningful way so that one of skill could find it. This, as it always is, in considering questions about the prior art status of documents, very factually driven, and that's the case here too. Here, the indexing was only by author or year and would have required skimming hundreds of titles. 
and by requiring skimming hundreds of titles to find the document, the court said it was not indexed in a way that would allow it to be found to give it prior art status. The website on which the Lynn document was available had an advanced search function so that you could do some searching by keywords, but that was found to be deficient and unreliable. And because of that, the search function would not have allowed one of ordinary skill to find the document. Finally, the court in Acceleration Bay clarified that the question is not whether there's indexing. The question is whether someone could find it. So the fact that something is indexed doesn't mean that it's indexed in a way that's meaningful or reliable to give the document prior art status. The lesson, perhaps, from Acceleration Bay is in challenging the prior art status of a document in the PTAB in an IPR or in presenting it. You can't stop at the fact that something is indexed. There needs to be either more detailed information about how that indexing will allow the document to be found, or on the other hand, challenge in the indexing to demonstrate that it would not be. And finally, Dory, what are some of the important takeaways we can pull from the GoPro and Acceleration Bay opinions? I think from both of these decisions, looking at the prior art status of documents in IPRs, the board is willing and will drill down and make specific factual determinations about the status of prior art. It is the obligation of the petitioner to provide detailed and specific facts about how a document is prior art in the GoPro case, how the trade show demonstrated that this document was in effect publicly available because of the lack of restrictions on distribution and because of the sheer number of catalogs that were distributed, notwithstanding the closed nature of the trade show, that it can in fact be prior art. So the presentation of detailed and specific facts demonstrating that this document was distributed. On the other hand, in Acceleration Bay, the challenge to the prior art status and the successful challenge to the prior art status showing that this particular document was not actually accessible and the duty on behalf of the challenger to demonstrate the lack of accessibility, the lack of indexing and the search function that would show that the document had prior art status. Our guest has been Dory Hines, a partner at Finnegan, one of the largest IP law firms in the world. For more commentary on intellectual property news and issues, to listen to other podcasts, and to receive additional information on the firm, please visit www.finnegan.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Finnegan.